0: Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee, Dee. I'm Maz Mary
1: and I'm Dana Delval. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it.
0: And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism.
1: And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Sorry, I tried something that didn't work. So we're just gonna jump right into it (laughs) and I'll keep working on that. You know, I shouldn't start something new technologically at like 8.03 in the morning.
0: It looked good though. It It, did look good. It'll look great
1: next week. So by next week, I'll have spent a little more time with it. Welcome to Daily Dose, it's guest Thursday. We are very much looking forward to having two guests join us today. Tracy Ritter and Sarah Warner are coming on. They were introduced to us from Jennifer Place, who joined us, I don't know, maybe a month ago. Jennifer's with the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention, and she knows Sarah and Tracy that way. So let's bring them on camera and get this conversation started. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning, Tracy.
2: Good morning. Good morning,
1: Sarah. Hey, Sarah. We are really, really thrilled to have you with us this morning um, to talk about both a personal and a professional side of addiction that you have both experienced differently, but similarly. So why don't we jump right into the, the personal pieces of it, and then we'll talk about the advocacy work and the actual work that you are doing around Um, addiction, particularly as it relates to opioids. So uh, Tracy, you're on top with us. Do you want to start talking about uh, Evan? Sure, I'd be happy to.
2: Good morning, everybody. I am from Denver, Colorado, and um, my family and I um, lost our son Evan um, to a substance overdose death in October of 2018. Um, Evan was 25 years young and uh, we're coming up on his 29th birthday here in, um, would be his 29th birthday in April of this year. Um, But, you know, Evan was the light of my life and um, his memories and his, what he had to offer to this world, I still uh, reflect upon that and I still focus my attention on him as a person a side of the addiction and um that's what carries me through and that's what my advocacy
1: work um involves first of all i'm so so sorry for your loss i just uh, as a mother of a boy i just cannot fathom it and so thank you for figuring out how to make some sense of that terrible terrible loss um I guess my question for you before we move on to Sarah is just, were you in advocacy before this happened or it, or did this come about because of your loss?
2: It really did come about because of my loss. I was not doing advocacy work prior. I think that, you know, through my own spiritual faith and then through, um, the purpose that I feel um, in terms of sharing Evan and his story in order to help other people, that was kind of my driving force um, to move forward with some of the things that I am doing or have done um, up to this point. And um, I think it's definitely part of my own healing also in doing the work that I am
1: at this time. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So Sarah, you have a similar story about your nephew, Jonathan. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about Jonathan in that experience, please. Sure, <clears throat> pardon
3: me. My, my husband and I have no children, so we really dote on our on our nieces and nephews. And I was particularly close to my nephew, John. Um, he, I knew he was having substance use issues when he was in uh, high school. And in fact, he was in treatment during his senior year of high school. Um, But he seemed to be doing well. I had assumed it was alcohol. Um, I knew there were some other marijuana and perhaps other drugs, but I really was not very well educated in the problems of substance use disorder. And we lost John when he was 19. He was in his third day at college. and he relapsed and um, used heroin that had been poisoned with fentanyl. So it was actually the fentanyl that killed him. I was totally devastated and gobsmacked because yeah. we had locked up our wine when he came and stayed with us because I thought that was the issue. So um, with the inspiration of my sister and her husband, um, that's how I came to be involved in 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 the work of the consortium and um
1: joining SAFE Project. Well, we'll say the same thing to you. We're so sorry for your loss as well. Family is family. It's whoever you bring into your world are the people that matter to you. And so to lose him at both these young men at such incredibly young ages um, for such terrible reasons, I just, I, I cannot imagine how either one of you have carried on, but you have, um, and you're doing such important, important work. So I wanna read again, you're the co-chairs of the affected families and friends work group inside the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse. So um, let's talk a little bit about that work, and then we'll talk about SAFE Project and some of the other things that are happening. So um, we'll just open it up to the two of you to talk about it however you would like to. Sure, Um, the Colorado Consortium is
3: is an organization that is trying to coordinate the response to the opioid epidemic in Colorado. And as such, it's an umbrella organization. So all of the other organizations that are working in this field um, meet together um, to discuss strategy so that we have a coordinated effort across the state, we're just one of the many work groups We're the affected friends and family. So that's who we work with. Some of the other groups include treatment, recovery, uh, criminal justice, safe disposal, etc. And each each work group has its specific purpose and reason. And um, so in this way, we feel it makes our response stronger because we're able to unite all the disparate groups um, to have a more unified effort.
2: Absolutely. And and I think that, um, and that is so true, everything that Sarah said about the um, consortium and uh, particularly our affected families and friends work group, we bring um, people together that are typically um, affected family members in some way or another, or know somebody that is an affected family member, um, or a friend, or somebody that's loved, somebody that's, that's lost now. Um, but it's also a, a way to share that person and share the memories of that person. And we've been able to do that through various ways, through um, videos that we've um, each produced to be able to share on the um, Beyond the Numbers website through the Colorado Consortium. And that really gives families and friends a sense of um, peace to be able to share their loved one and reflect on the life that they did live. So I think it's very meaningful work in us continuing to put those things together um, we're working on teaser videos now that are really short clips of what those beyond the number videos are, which are about three to four minutes. The teasers mm-hmm. are smaller, shorter. So it it's it's really gratifying to see family members find some sort of inspiration in that way.
1: Well, and so lovely to humanize these numbers. I mean, beyond the numbers is so smart. I, I often think about... Um, I was a child during the last couple of years of Vietnam. So I don't remember this personally, but you I I have read, you know, that they used to list the names and sometimes images at the end of newscasts of, of soldiers who had died in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I often felt like when we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, to say, you know, 17 soldiers were killed when a Black Hawk plane crashed in, or whatever. Those are just numbers. Those aren't anybody's sons and daughters and spouses and daddies and mothers and all of that. It's not until we see who someone was, till we meet a piece of Evan, till we meet a piece of John and all these other lost people that it stops being, well, 150,000 people die a year or, you know, that's a terrible number, but that's just a number it's very different to hear about a human being who was important to his and her family and in the community and, and with so much more than their addiction. Um, so it, I, yeah. Go ahead. It also
3: helps reduce the stigma, I think, to realize that there are other people like you. And in fact, more than we could possibly know, so yeah. many people have been affected by this epidemic. Um, and it, it's it's good to, to speak out and share your experiences because this helps reduce the stigma and hopefully will make it make the problem more evident to everybody so we can come up with solutions and find help for those who need it.
1: Yeah, certainly it's um, just an incredible thing that we all live with in one way or another, and... <laughs> uh-huh. And that stigma does does create such an isolating experience. I've said many, many times, I felt like I must be the only spouse living with somebody who drank too much who'd ever lived in the history of humanity. So I told no one because I was sure nobody could understand me. Well, then as soon as we started to talk about it, we realized, oh, everybody's got some touch point to addiction they're just not talking about it no. yeah. and the freedom of saying me too is really powerful it's very
0: powerful From the addict's point of view too when you if you in rehab one of the things that stuck in my mind is that i wasn't alone either mm-hmm. exactly so yes. and that was one of the most powerful things i remember was the first time i went to a, an all men's meeting on a saturday so the local Lutheran church went into the room There were a couple of hundred men just and I, I was terrified for a second. I was then humbled. I didn't feel alone anymore, and I thought, right, if I do this right, this is a place to start to get help. And every not a single person in that room judges you. Yeah. Right, right. It's a it's a great um, environment and a safe environment to be in, and to set up organisations that strive for that is is an amazing thing to do. Mm-hmm.
3: And that's one of the beauties of, <clears throat> pardon me, of AA. For example, um, I remember going to a funeral of a friend who um, had been in recovery from alcohol for years, and I I said to somebody else, "My gosh, look at all the people in this room." I had no idea he knew all these prominent people, and he said, "Well, he met them all in AA." Oh, so yeah. I mean, there were all the movers and shakers in the city, yeah. basically. So well, it's it's a it's a a fraternity or a sorority or a club or however you want to put it, but Um, there's there's real strength, um, and, uh, and assistance in knowing that you're not dealing with this alone, that there's, there's a lot of people out there who are pulling for you and want you to succeed.
1: Well, and in your two cases, it's as vital to have, I'm a family member of fill in the blank support as well, because that is it, it's not gonna kill you to be the family member, but it is gonna isolate you and it is gonna bring grief and trauma and all of the pieces that go with it. So um, above and beyond these videos, which I'll make sure we put some links directly to those video sections because they're really powerful. What else, what else are you finding is valuable both in your own journey through your ongoing grief process and in the work that you're doing as part of these, this co-chair role, to to make access for other families too.
2: Well, I think in my um, situation, you know, being a family advocate or a family support um, for Advocates for Recovery Colorado, I think that you know, there's so much that I'm learning um, by just talking to other family members, and there's so much relatability certainly, as I talk to these families and kind of like what we touched on, they oftentimes feel very alone, even now, even now. And we sure felt that as a family 10 years ago, you know, so things still need to continue to change in that way, that we are talking about this and that these family members are getting support. And Um, that's one of the things that I do is one-on-one support or group support, um, with families so that we can share, but not only share and talk about it. Um, but to try to come up with some steps, some action steps moving forward to help families relate to their loved ones, communicate with their loved ones, to be able to, um, just improve that relationship in the hopes that that improves their addiction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm talking about families that are living right now with somebody that is struggling with substance use. And so that's the work that I do. And I just feel like there's so much that I didn't know then that I'm learning now. And what Sarah said earlier about just knowing a lot about substances and what the person you love may be using learning as much as you can and just sharing with that person that you love them sometimes that is as much as you can do
1: yeah
2: and you know you you can't change somebody they have to want to change themselves
1: yeah um sarah you sent a video about a young man named alex nelson and his parents that we watched this morning Mm -hmm. and tracy that is just absolutely exactly what they talked about i mean she, the, Alex's mother talked about, we we always loved him through this. We, that was never in question, but he really had to figure out how to cure himself. We could just be there to support him, to love him, to encourage him, but he had to do the work. And then we had to do our own work. And mm-hmm. if only we could know, then what we know now in so many instances. I mean, it's, I I guess it's one of the great kind of ironic sadnesses of life that you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. You often learn it really in very hard and painful ways. Right. And then there's no way to go back and fix it. I
0: think what struck me about that particular interview is when I've met a lot of people who are just, like almost when they go in a rehab they kind of accept it i mean he was talking about going in the times he went into rehab kicking and screaming because he just didn't want to be there i mean how do you set up that initial mindset to get someone to think hang on a sec i need to be here i mean how difficult a job is that
2: <laughs> uh, that's a great question um i'll just speak from our experience you know it's, um, it, you know, I, I, I think that treatment centers work for some people in certain ways and they may not have as um, much of an impact for other people in ways. Um, I think there are multiple pathways to recovery and to treatment and recovery options. And um, I don't think like the the only way is the AA 12 step way for some people, for some people it is, Um, you know, in our situation with Evan, I don't think that was exactly the path for him, AA or no way. Um, You know, he was, I think that what I think is important, um, is to really get to know that person that's in treatment and why they're behaving, not behaving, why, what is affecting their addiction? What's going on in their life? What are some of the mental pieces? What are their anxieties? What are they unsure about in themselves um, that are creating more of that, um, that isolation and that shame? You have to fix that or work with that first in order to help treat the addiction. Um, And that's just my my opinion, um, in some of these treatment facilities, they need to do a lot of one-on-one, I think.
1: Mm. Well, so, and I, anything you want to add, sorry. Yeah. Um,
3: I also want to say that with opioids, there's very significant physiological changes that occur when people abuse opioids so that they are, they constantly need more because they become habituated. And also it, it, when you stop using it, your system just cannot experience uh, joy, you cannot naturally enjoy life because you are physically unable to because of the changes in your nervous system. So the, I mean, they have people have to be gradually taken off the medic off the opioid. But it takes a while for those neurological um, systems to return to normal. So it's it's not just a, a, a question of will or of self knowledge. There's yeah. there's a huge medical component in this, and previously there were not as it wasn't treated that way as a medical problem, and it is truly a medical
1: problem yeah. to overcome right. an opioid addiction. Yeah. So let's transition a little bit, Sarah. I want to put this um, up in the chat so that people can find it, and I will add. Some other links as well as we um, put notes in. But this safe project, which you are part of, this is a national organization. Let's talk a little bit about that because that website and that information is, um, feels exhaustive. I know it's not exhaustive because if it were exhaustive, then we could solve this. And it's, Uh you know, we're not there yet. But Uh talk about what you're learning from this really extensive online international program? Sorry. Um, well,
3: it's actually uh, was created by my sister and brother-in-law after the mm-hmm. loss of my nephew. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So I've seen it from the front seat, so to speak. Okay. Um, and it's amazing what they've done in a few short years since my nephew's death. But it it looks at the problem as as a complex of It's the community, it's the schools, it's the workplace, it's the military. And so they look at each community. Um, Areas that I'm particularly impressed with is, is the work that SAFE has done on campuses. They have a leadership recovery program to teach people who are in recovery to become inspirational leaders to others who are dealing with substance use. They also have something that's called Reconnected. And it's for alumni of universities, because after they leave college or whatever postgraduate institute they were in, they go to a new community. And how do people meet? Usually, or it used to be in non-COVID times, they went to bars. They yeah. went out for a drink after work. Yeah. So how do you reconnect? How do you find people in your area who have had a similar issue with substance use in the past? So reconnected allows allows these young people to log in, create a very secure username, and to find organizations and people um, with similar interests in their area um, who, who want to find other means of socializing bes- besides those revolving around some kind of substance use. So that's that's been a huge project, and actually that originated out of Colorado, um, out of University of Colorado. Um, They have some great, uh, we have some great veterans programs. One um, that we've been using is called Emotional Ruck. Um, Veterans returning from deployment, all of a sudden they're back in a civilian life that is just totally alienated, 100 degrees different from what they were in. And it's a difficult adjustment period. So um, Emotional Ruck and their emotional wellness programs help families not just the veteran, but their families to understand what they're going through and deal with the emotional issues so that they don't feel the need to uh, turn to substance use.
1: Um, one of the things I was really struck by and took today was the no shame pledge. Hmm. Yeah. I really, really loved that. It's for anyone, whether you've experienced addiction personally or lived with it or, or not, but this idea of kind of four simple things. So one, I acknowledge that this is a disease. This is not a failure or a moral decline on, on a person's part. It's a disease. And and I acknowledge that talking about it is a good thing. And I, you know, all the, it's really, really beautiful. And um, I can't wait to get my certificate, quite frankly. <laughs> I feel very proud of myself. Um, and I I thought it was just such a such a powerful way to be an ally. I think we're talking about allyship across, you know, BIPOC communities and for women and indigenous people. And I, we're trying to, I think as a culture, be so much more aware that not everybody fits the regular square box that we've decided is what makes a, the right kind of person and everybody else is the wrong kind of person. This, this goes, so powerfully towards that allyship, they don't have to have struggled with addiction to be an ally to people who are working to be in recovery, whatever stage and phase of that they are. So I loved that. We're going to share that link, and really, I, I just think it's a fabulous right. way to take a first, pretty low impact but high, low low stress, high impact step towards this work. Yes. We yeah. all know somebody who is struggling, whether we know that they're struggling or not. That's
3: exactly true. And I, I, I'm still surprised because I'm very open about my, you know, what happened in our family and the work that I do. And it still amazes me that people that I've known for a long time and who know what's gone on in my life, finally will, it will tell me of an issue in their own family. And I'm, you know, at first I'm like, why didn't you tell me that two years ago? Yeah, And um, everybody arrives at that place at a different time, but um, they need to feel comfortable. Yeah. So we need to help
1: everyone feel comfortable about acknowledging. Absolutely. I'm I'm curious to know from either of you or both of you, uh, were you talking about these struggles before you lost these young men Or did you come to openness because of the loss?
2: And when you say talk about the struggles, do you mean talk about it within our
1: own family or talk about outside of the family? Outside of your family. Were you you already, not not advocates, but were you already trying to find pathways to navigate your own piece of it?
2: We actually... um, You know, we saw with a a family counselor, um, but that did not help us out at all. It was not the right fit with that particular counselor. We did reach out a little bit with um, some parents in the Mm -hmm. neighborhood that our kids are friends. And then so we got to know the parents a little bit that way. And we knew that um, some of these other young men were struggling a little bit with substance use and this was when they were in high school. Okay. So we did sort of form that support conversation. Yeah. Um if you will. However, it it was difficult. It was very difficult to still talk about that because I think that each of us felt as though, well, you know, maybe our kids don't really have as much of a problem. It's sort of a normal thing that teenagers go through. Oh. And I think that that brings up a whole new area because sometimes it is what teenagers go through. And they drink in high school. They smoke some marijuana in high school and they get past it. They get over it. They don't need it. They can put it down and never do it again if they wish. But there are those people who become addicted and it isn't easy for them. And it, And that's not necessarily the path that they need to go is here and there. They need to not use substances at all. Um, and so I think there's a misconception and we were guilty of it as parents. Well, you know, it's just, it, it, he's just, you know, having some fun and, you know, it's not anything to take too seriously. We were very aware of it be, being that we met with other parents, yeah. but we still didn't think, oh, this could happen to our child. Yeah. You know, yeah. we didn't think that there was going to be uh, a treatments in the, in the future that, Evan would be going into, um, rehab facilities.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sarah, was that true for you as well? It's it perhaps slightly different since he was not your son. I mean, I, I think it's hard to choose to talk about someone else's child, even if you're very, very close to them, but, um, but maybe you had a different experience.
3: Um, well, as I said, I, I knew he was struggling with alcohol issues, but, um, but, and I was open about that. I mean, I told friends mm. uh, and other people I knew that what was going on in our family, but I had a brother who um, had issues with alcohol for years. So, and I had also talked about that with people. So um, from, from a family perspective, um, I, I was open about what was going on. Uh, my understanding of, of opioids was limited
1: i'm a retired
3: dentist so i did see i did not prescribe pain medications very often um uh, but when i would do um intake for new patients and for returning patients and we would get a list of medications there was a small subset of people who were taking vicodin every day and i was amazed by that and i said why are you taking vicodin every day and they would say well three years ago I was in a car accident and I got whiplash and I have this chronic pain in my neck. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, um, shouldn't you be off the pain meds by now? And I would oftentimes write a letter to their physician saying we did an intake, just want to be aware, want, you know, just want to make sure that the, this is, these are the medications the people are taking and, um, We were concerned about their consumption of opioid pain medications, and I never received a single response. Wow. Um, And that still goes on today. I mean, pain is real, and, and, um, and we should make pain medications available to people who need it. It's chronic, you know, it's number one, acute pain. How much pain relief do you really need? Do you really need? 40, 60, 80 pills of oxycodone. No, you don't. Um, Second of all, a chronic pain issue needs to be addressed. Um, You can't just take a pill and make your problems go away. And I think we have that mindset that if Mm -hmm. I just take this, it'll be fine. But you really have to work at it. You have to go to your physical therapy. You have to try different things. regimes to reduce your discomfort um and and i think a lot of times we look for an easy solution Mm -hmm. and the easiest solution is is often a pipe dream it's it's only complicates matters
1: yeah i have a final question for you and then do you have anything specific
0: no this is just i so incredible it's an incredible thing to listen to
1: um And you two are so much more versed because of the work you're doing in this than I am. So uh, I, I really am curious to know, now that Maz and I have become so public about this, a couple of things happen on a pretty regular basis. People come to me if they have a spouse in particular who they're worried about uh, and we really have not delved into the world beyond alcoholism mm-hmm. because that has been our lived experience. And I I feel pretty firmly that the opioid crisis is a whole yes, other I would think so uh, beast that I, I don't feel like I have any experience with. Um, so people will come to me and they sort of want to know, you know, what I think. And I, we are both very clear all the time. We're not playing therapists or medical doctors or anything in that realm. We're just sharing our experience. Um, but the other thing is that other people will come to me and I can pick up on the denial that they are in because it looks exactly like the denial that I was in. Well, he drinks more than I'm comfortable with, but he's not an alcoholic. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, that would have been what I would have said to anybody who pushed me. How? I actually
0: said that about myself. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: so how in the world do you navigate these conversations when they're they're very tricky? I don't want to be diagnosing people. It's not appropriate because I'm not qualified and because we don't know what anybody else's experience is. But how do you also navigate the fact that as a person speaking about it openly, you are often a frontline responder to people who have questions and really want to know more. Maybe my question is, where should I direct people? Whoa, where did we go? There we go. Oh, we went. We're back. Where, where should we direct people as we are trying to be helpful without overstepping our boundary and our knowledge base? Maybe that's the question.
2: I mean, that is a, and I'll have Sarah chime in here too. Um, But I, I guess I speak on behalf of you know the organization that I work for now, um, because we are um, a resource organization in addition to providing support services for people who um, are either in recovery or trying to get into recovery. And, um, you know, so we have peer coaches where I work that meet people where they're at. Mm. So nobody tries to diagnose anybody because as you well indicated, none of us are clinical. Um, Mm -hmm. and so we really have that philosophy of meeting them where they are, whatever pathway they choose, you know, we want people to know that they're not alone and we're here to support them wholeheartedly and to make connections. So the um, opposite of addiction is connections. So and one of our slogans is recovery, recover, we as opposed to recovery, recover. Oh, nice. So, you know, it's really that emphasizes um, that approach to um, offer get-togethers for people also. We do socials um, to bring people in. We have the Super Bowl social. We do uh, karaoke um, nights, things along that line to, again, you know, have networks um, just like Safe Project does in terms of ways for people to connect with other sober Within the sober living communities,
0: yeah. Mm, yeah. so
2: I can speak on behalf of that. Um, maybe Sarah would like to share a little bit more too regarding that, and you know, maybe a bit of a broader look at that.
3: Well, I I refer refer refer. I guess is is how I could say it. I if it's a if it's an a family member, I invite them to join our group,
1: mm-hmm. uh, watch our
3: videos, and make myself available. Um, If it's somebody who's in denial about their issue, um, you know, you just listen to them because Mm -hmm. if they're in denial, that means they probably deep down already know, Mm -hmm. but they just don't want to admit it, you know. So um, and you don't want to alienate people in that in that respect. Yeah, Um, that there there's a tremendous amount of of. information available, um, on the internet. Um, so unlike say 40 years ago when people truly were completely isolated, now we're connected electronically at least if not on an interpersonal
1: level. So, um, there's,
3: there's a lot of information out there. um, and there are a lot of groups that, um, people can join if they need therapy, treatment, whatever. We can help them find it, even though we don't
2: offer that service
3: ourselves, right. Yeah. right?
2: Exactly. And I just wanted to share one more thing that I forgot to share. Two two little things. So, we also do recovery meetings. So basically, mm-hmm. they're offered five nights a week, wow. and you can pe- individuals can jump on Zoom, or we meet in person also for those recovery meetings, and those tend to be a great source of support and just for people that are either in recovery or trying to get into recovery, it's a welcoming community and they get to share what's been going on um, with their week. However, you know, it's really important that it's not, it doesn't become a war story, if you will, Mm -hmm. that we stay focused on, you know, what the positives are and what the steps are to um, get the help. And steps for action um, for progress. And then, one final thing I'll say is that, you know, with my role as a family support, um, addiction is a family disease. So, my job um, is to really help the family members because the better that we can support families with somebody that's either in addiction, in recovery, in treatment, or in recovery, the more the family can understand their addiction also or their recovery and steps to move forward with that and then obviously is going to ultimately help the communication if families um, understand what's going on
1: and supported yeah wow well thank you both so much for coming on to share the a brief second with the young men in your life with Evan and John and and for the work that you have picked up in spite of your grief so that other people hopefully it's, it's don't have to live what with you two that have too done.
0: I, I really i wish you continued success
1: oh my gosh thank, thank, you, thank you, so you for much. having us. well it's been really lovely been so we'll get a lot of links into the meeting notes and people can Be looking for these resources and learning more and watching videos and all the kinds of things that were talked about today. So, thank you so much, Sarah and Tracy. Thank you very much, both of you. Wonderful to be on the Daily Dose. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Have a great, great great day. day, See you live next Tuesday. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. If you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana Del Val, And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, email me at D A d-a-y-n-a Y N A at D A Y N A D E L V A L dot com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye bye.